the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, let's continue our sojourn on the Gold Coast with our centenary of the RAAF. And today we're chatting with David Robson. Now, David was born in 1944 in suburban London. He actually was kept in a crate under the kitchen table when the doodle bugs or buzz bombs were overhead. He was left with a visual memory of the Spitfires and later reveled in the stories of the fighter pilots. His family migrated to Australia in 1950. He loved comics and also radio serials, in particular Biggles, Hop Harrigan, and made balsa models with his family. He returned to the United Kingdom in 1958. He attended the Farnborough Air Show and watched Triple One Squadron flying Black Hawker Hunter aircraft, the Black Arrows. He saw prototype Vulcan, Victor and Valiant aircraft flying as well as Javelin and Sea Vixen and many others. He joined the Air Training Corps and went gliding and flying and parachuting. He won a flying scholarship and learnt to fly up to solo standard in Chipmunks at RAF Biggin Hill, the most famous fighter base from the Battle of Britain. David's family returned to Australia in 1962. He couldn't stay out of the air, and so in 1964, he joined the RAF as air crew. Keep listening. David has an outstanding and colourful life in aviation and associated roles, including being a test pilot. More varied than a patchwork quilt. David, welcome. Part of the Royal Australian Air Force's centenary, you must feel extra special. Yeah, it's been a special year for a couple of reasons, Gareth. Um, It is the centenary, as you say, of the RAAF, but we were also heavily involved in the 50th anniversary in 1971. And uh, I had the honour to be part of an aerobatic team that was formed to perform all over the country to celebrate that, that particular anniversary. So... Uh, we were hoping to have a reunion uh, two or three weeks ago, actually, on the 31st of March of that aerobatic team because everyone was still alive. Um, because of COVID, it was postponed a little bit. Um, but then tragically, about three or four days ago, the leader of the team, Bruce Grayson, passed away with cancer. So we can't have our reunion after all. That, that was the Deltas at that stage, was it not? Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah, we'll come, we'll come to that. Um, I I'm have a, how can I put this? Uh, I have an empathy with you because you like two things that I liked as a kid. Yes. W.E. John's Biggles. Yes. And Hot Harrigan on radio. Absolutely. Was, yep, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> which was your favourite Biggles story? Oh, I like them all. I mean, that's a hard question, that one. Um, I, I enjoyed them as a boy. Um, but also I should say that uh, I'm now in uh, an aviation publishing business technical books and so on and we moved from Melbourne to to Brisbane about uh, 12 years ago but as I was leaving Melbourne uh, a lady approached me and she said her husband uh, who was a I think he was a lecturer at uh, one of the universities in Melbourne 
He said that yeah. he was an avid collector of, uh, of W.E. Johns and particularly the Biggles books and he had the whole lot in various states of, uh, of repair and he had passed away and she asked me if I would look after them uh, which oh. I, I did for some years and I presented them to the, um, the school in Brisbane called Aviation Australia or sorry uh, Aviation High and uh, they've got them in the library there somewhere so uh, but they're all in they're pretty worn they've, they've been well read yeah well read uh, I've because I only recently have resurrected some of the old copies that I had and I looked on uh, eBay and the prices of some of the editions are unbelievable. Oh yes, I can imagine. But you, you mentioned you mentioned Hop Harrigan too. I, I was uh, my, my family came as migrants to uh, to Australia, and we were at a hostel in Fisherman's Bend in Port Melbourne. And all we had then in those days was a radio. And I used to come home from school and listen to Hop Harrigan and uh, so on on the yep. on the radio. And some years later, I was in Canberra and I went to the the National Archives. And they had a few episodes of Hop Harrigan, and uh, I asked if I could uh, just copy them for for old time's sake. But sadly, they said that they were subject to copyright by the uh, the, the owners or the radio station or whatever, and they they weren't allowed to give me a copy. I I from I'll have to get in touch with uh, Mr. Ring uh, a little bit later on and mm -hmm. give you the who actually owns the copyright for a whole pile of radio serials and you might be able to get in touch with him and get some copies but let's 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 not reminisce about our respective childhoods <laughs> although actually with you I would like to because I believe you were born in London now there was something that you wrote that I was confused about you were kept in a crate as a baby because of the doodle bugs yeah it's interesting isn't it um, towards <laughs> My my parents uh, worked right through the war. My father worked at a company called C.B. Gorman's who made breathing apparatus for pilots and divers, so it was a protected industry. So his company worked, uh, existed for the whole of the war, and he wasn't allowed to be called up because of the, uh, the skill that he had to offer. And my mother was a nurse, and she went from being a, a nurse in a hospital to being an industrial nurse in a big factory. And she ended up in the same place, and she in her spare time used to turn those big brass divers helmets um, on a big lathe, a big turret lathe, and she was the only woman allowed to use the equipment. But she was telling me that, uh, I mean, they live right through the London Blitz. She was saying that uh, later in the war when the uh, flying bombs, the V1s, were heard over, overhead, the, the nickname they gave them were doodlebugs. Um, right. If they didn't have time to get to the bomb shelter, uh, she used to put me in a wooden crate and put it underneath the kitchen table just in case I needed a bit of extra protection. <laughs> the family, I, is it correct, you migrated to Australia in 1950 and then you went back to England in 1958. But when you did migrate, something that uh, caused me great angst, uh, anguish, you were punished at school in Australia because you were left-handed. Yeah, it's the school is a bit of an issue in in those days. It was a Catholic school. My mother was an Irish Catholic, and so I had to go to a Catholic school. Um, but Port Melbourne, as you can imagine, was not was was fairly Catholic. But the uh, migrant hostel, mostly English and Scottish migrants, was very Protestant. So I was sort of out of place there. And then when I went to the Catholic school, the nuns were very much against you writing with your left hand. The, 
the, uh, the desks we had had an inkwell and we used a dip pen and it was on the right hand side of the desk and when I tried to write with that I used to smear the ink on my, on my writing pad and it got to the stage where even the parish priest was called in and he had to go and interview my parents to say this was not good that I was left handed and I was, expl oh. I was told later on actually that the, the Latin for left is sinistra, sinister and the reason for that is that in the Roman legions you use your right hand for holding your sword and for eating food and you use your left hand for wiping your bum okay uh. so, so, <laughs> so the catholic church for some reason uh, adopted this policy that left-handedness was was against the uh, against everything and uh, they they try to beat it out of you they literally try to beat it out of you well are you still left-handed uh, by any strange chance, Dave? I am, and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> good, good on you. Good on you. All right, now, you joined the, the ATC. Is that the Air Training Corps in Australia, or are we back in England? Uh, what happened is we were, we were settling in, uh, in Melbourne. We bought a block of land at Noble Park, uh, but then my mother's father, my grandfather in Ireland, uh, was terminally ill. Um, right. and we couldn't afford to just hop on an aeroplane and pop back for a few weeks. So we had to sell up everything to pay the fares and we got a ship back to, uh, to England. My mother and I went to Ireland to nurse, nurse my grandfather and my father then had to find a job, uh, which he did at the naval dockyards, in uh, the naval uh, research laboratories in Twickenham. And, uh, and then we had to stay there for three years while we saved up the fare to come back to Australia. And in that time, I went to a school and uh, I joined the Air Training Corps. So it, the Air Training Corps was in England then. Yes. Now, I, I believe you won a flying scholarship and you ended up at a very famous uh, uh, airfield, uh, Biggin Hill. Uh, you were in Chipmunks. That Biggin Hill was big, big time during uh, the Battle of not the Battle of Britain, for Bomber Command. No, no, it was the Battle of Britain. Uh, it was the main fighter base in Kent. Uh, it's called Biggin on the Bump or Biggin on the Hill, and uh, it was one of the central bases. Uh, I, I grew up as a boy there, as you can imagine, and then when I went back into the Air Training Corps, I was just overflowing with admiration for the Battle of Britain, the, the Spitfire pilots and so on. And uh, when I won the scholarship, which was... Uh, a, 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 a cadetship, if, if you will, that hoped would recruit you into the Royal Air Force. So it was part of the, the induction process, I suppose. But you actually choose where you got to fly. And the nearest uh, aerodrome for me was uh, RAF Biggin Hill. So uh, I, I learned to fly there in Chipmunks, yes, at, uh, at Biggin Hill. It just uh, overwhelmed me in a way, uh, emotionally. Oh, I can imagine. Tell us about the Chipmunk. Uh, Canadian design, beautiful little aeroplane. It, it became the replacement for the Tiger Moth and it did a good job in that role. Uh, Two-seat tandem, nice responsive aerobatic little aeroplane um, uh, without the encumbrance of the upper wing so you could see better. And uh, yeah. it's it, quite difficult to fly in some respects being a tail dragger. Um, but it was a lovely little aeroplane and it, it taught you the good basic coordination skills for, for flying. So did you feel as a child, well, as a young man then, England is where we're staying, I'm in the ATC, I'll end up in the RAF? Is that, was that your hope, your expectation? That's a very astute observation there, Gareth, yes. Um, I actually got to the point where I had passed the selection tests for the Royal Air Force. Uh, I had trained at Biggin Hill um, and I had a pathway to the Royal Air Force. 
But my parents, we, we actually sat down one evening, and I will never forget it, and they put the cards on the table, basically. We had a, a nice house at a place called New Malden in Surrey, near, uh, near Wimbledon, actually, where the, where the tennis championships take place. And the pay in England wasn't good. My father was a highly skilled tradesman. He used to make hand make the propellers for the, the, uh, the ships, the, the models of the ships where they were testing the hull shapes and things like that for the big cruise ships. Yep. He hand carved yep. the propellers. Um, but it was poorly paid. And uh, my parents sat down and they said, well, yes, we can, we can just make do, but our future is pretty grim because we'll never have any spare money for savings or traveling or holidays or anything else. So we, we jointly, and, and they asked me, and I said, well, I'd be very happy to join the Royal Australian Air Force just as much as the Royal Air Force. And uh, so they, we, we sat down and said, we voted, and we said, okay, let's sell up everything and go back to Australia. So we did. That was in 1964? Uh, no, 1962. Oh, 62, 62. 1964, I think you is, I'm correct, that's when you actually joined the RAAF. Yes, we, 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 ca we came back to Melbourne and uh, we lived in Hawthorne for a while. And my first job was as a junior draftsman at the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation in Fisherman's Bend. Uh, and I was there for about 18 months while I went to night school at Swinburne Tech to, uh, to get my Victorian leaving certificate and so forth. And that gave me the entry requirements for the RAAF. And so then I joined the Air Force and went to Point Cook in uh, May of 64. So in the joining process, were they impressed the fact that you had already had training on chipmunks back with the RAF? the RAF in, uh, in uh, Biggin Hill? No, quite the opposite, actually. They, the, uh, the selection people, the, the Air Force people on the selection panel, there's a few psychiatrists and various people on the selection panel, but the, uh, the pilot-type people on the panel actually preferred us to have no, ex no experience and no training. They preferred a clean slate. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we won't uh, discuss the differences between the English system and the Australian <laughs> system just yet. But now, as as a, a member of the RAAF, you trained on windshields. How different to, was that, that to the chipmunk? Uh, similar in uh, in handling characteristics, but uh, much more power, 450 horsepower instead of about 140, um, and a side-by-side -side seating instead of tandem, which was better. But very much uh, similar in the way it performed in the air and the aerobatic qualities and so on and spinning and so forth so yeah the wind the transition from chipmunk to windshield was relatively easy I, I enjoyed the windshield okay so between you and me no one else the fact that you'd been already trained on chipmunks that must have given you an advantage when you sat in the cockpit of the windshield it, it did in terms of the the basic hand-eye coordination skills for flying yes it absolutely did um, but then I had to learn very, very quickly because there's a steep learning curve uh, under the pilot training scheme in the RAAF. So there was always a challenge, something, something new to learn or something to do better than you did before. The artistic side of you, I believe, designed a course badge. What, which course? What badge? Uh, it was 54 course, um, 54 pilots course. And it was a tradition that uh, each course had its own cloth badge. And uh, I think it was one of our academy guys came up with the uh, Latin expression nil panicus, which means, we think, don't means panic. don't panic. <laughs> um, and so I designed a little, uh, a little patch with the windshield and a pilot saying no panicus or nil panicus. 
fair enough. You, you do a couple of those designs throughout your career, but we'll come to that a little bit later. Uh, 1965 through 1967, uh, you have a story of the A315. What is that story? Uh, my girl. Uh, I'll always call her my girl. Uh, it was very strange, actually. You, you get to know aeroplanes when you fly them regularly. Uh, the Mirage was the most delightful aeroplane to fly, uh, probably the best supersonic fighter of its day in terms of handling qualities and uh, ergonomics, cockpit ergonomics. Uh, I flew A315 in, uh, in 76 Squadron before I was posted back to, uh, to Butterworth. And uh, yes, I enjoyed her. And then one day uh, we had a, uh, an O-ring failure in the nose wheel of the undercarriage and the nose wheel wouldn't come down. So I had to land this her was, with no nose wheel. This, in the mirage, yes. this, this was in the, the Mirage with This is the Mirage, yes, A315. And uh, so uh, I looked after her and she looked after me. And then uh, years later when I came back to, uh, to Australia after Vietnam, I went to 77 Squadron and when I joined the Deltas, uh, I was given A315 as my personal aeroplane. So I had my name on it even. So I got to know her even even better and uh, it was quite a tearful day for me when I had to say farewell. You don't, couldn't you have maybe made a deal with the RAAF and bought it? Would you believe I tried? When the, uh, <laughs> when the, uh, when the, uh, we, had, we had a department of supply I think it was called, would given the task of selling off the Mirages as scrap metal basically or selling a package of, of all the Mirages and we sold them to Pakistan and uh, I actually wrote to the Chief of Air Force at the time to try and save two aeroplanes. One was A32, which was our instrumented aircraft we used at Arju for flight testing, and uh, A315, which I wanted to keep as a, a, a gate guardian somewhere. Um, but I was told that uh, they weren't allowed to take individual aircraft out of the package. They'd all been sold as a bundle to Pakistan and it couldn't be renegotiated, so it, it got nowhere. Why was it called the A three fifteen? What what's ah okay the the each of the aircraft in the Royal Australian Air Force uh, has A as a prefix and then a number which is the aircraft type. So A three is the Mirage, uh, the Mirage three that we had, and number fifteen was number fifteen off the production line. So A three fifteen was the fifteenth Mirage. Oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. What what's the uh number or the designation for the F-111? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> we, we won't get down that path. Um, you go to Butterworth and 75 Squadron in Mirages and you are deployed to Tengar. Can you relate that experience for us? Yes, uh, it was my my uh, meeting yet again. Uh, we'll meet again with the Royal Air Force, actually, because uh, we were flying Mirages. We had lots of exercises over Malaya with the Royal Air Force because in those days we were all part of what was called FIAF, which is the Far East Air Force, which was an English-managed um, air force for the protection, basically, of Southeast Asia. And uh, therefore, we had joint exercises with the Royal Air Force quite a lot. And uh, at one stage in uh, Butterworth, the runway was being resealed, and uh, I think it was going to take about three months. So we were deployed to Tenga, which was the Royal Air Force base on Singapore, on the west coast of Singapore. And they had a hunter squadron there and a lightning squadron. 
and so we had lots of uh, engagements with uh, with our colleagues in the RAF and uh, and lots of um, lots of evenings together in fact after night flying we used to go back to the officers mess at Tenga and uh, there was a few you know friendly ribs with each other the the lightning had two Avon engines one above the other and each had afterburners and from the officers mess you could sit down and look at the aircraft taking off and we used to bet whether or not both afterburners would light on the two engines of the lightning because it was a little bit unreliable um, but the other thing we had was on Friday nights um, the, there was a, a few characters in the in the hunter squadron 20 squadron and we always used to meet after night flying for what they used to call eggy bake which was egg and bacon and they had a system in the in the air force and we did in those days you had what was called a flight kitchen so if pilots were on duty during normal meal hours and we couldn't get changed to go to the officers mess for lunch or for dinner we could go to the flight kitchen or we could order it and they would bring a, a snack or a meal to the crew room and on friday nights we always had eggy bake which is the british term for eggs and bacon and uh, baked beans and uh, they declared friday nights would be poets night and the the letters poets standard for piss off everybody tomorrow saturday Oh, you're a character, David. You're a character. Oh, I'm just um, I'm just passing on what was going on. <laughs> naturally. naturally. Um, so I'm interested to know you're in Tengar uh, and the British are there and the Australians are there. At any point in your career, did you work with the Americans? Not until I got to Vietnam, no. There was... Uh, a very distinct separation actually the the brits at those in those days were heavily involved in southeast asia and it was much later that they withdrew from hong kong and uh, and singapore and uh, and withdrew back into uh, into the european theater um, right. and that i think was largely drawn drawn by technology because they had to get into what was called an ecm environment electronic countermeasures the uh, the cold war was at its peak and the, the Russians and the Americans were heavily advanced with electronic countermeasures for jamming radars and jamming each other and uh, jamming their missiles, etc. And I think at that stage, the Brits realised they couldn't really afford to have these deployments to Asia as well. So they actually withdrew into Europe and NATO and became heavily involved in that type of operation. Uh, we were pretty much left uh, to our own devices in Malaya and in Thailand, and Yubon you've no doubt heard about. Um, and then, of course, we, uh, we, because we had a, uh, an allegiance to America because of the uh, Second World War and particularly the Battle of the Coral Sea, um, Australia was obliged to support the Americans um, in Vietnam uh, because uh, it, even though it wasn't a, a, a United Nations operation, we had some obligation to America to be their ally. And so that's when we got to work closely with them. We had some experience in Yubon, but our, our intimate involvement was in Vietnam. Yeah, I, I want to come back to your nose wheel landing in the Mirage in a moment. But firstly, let me ask about Ubon in Thailand. Uh, your role, that your role there was what? Uh, we were there officially for the air defence of Thailand uh, under part of uh, we were under the, <laughs> under yet another agreement. We were part of CETO. Uh, there was a southern. Uh, hemisphere equivalent of NATO called the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CETO. And we were there with Thailand and America and our role there was the air defense of, of Thailand and we had uh, sabers on armed alert uh, in Yubon. 
and uh, the Americans at that stage were building up the bases there for operations over North Vietnam. What year was this? Would this have been, David? Uh, this would have been around late '66, early '67. Okay, so Vietnam is certainly happening in 66 and 67. You were defending uh, Thailand against whom? Of communist incursions from Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam? Precisely. It, 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 was, not, not un, it was unknown, effectively, what, what threat would result, uh, whether or not uh, there would be aircraft like MiGs and so on coming down. But the one that was definite was incursions by uh, helicopters, particularly night incursions, which were bringing in uh, communist terrorists across the Mekong River and landing them in, in, in Thailand for various places to disrupt the, uh, uh, disrupt the whole society there. Um, and uh, we were actually on armed alert during the day um, and we experimentally, uh, we were scrambled at night under flare ships to, uh, to find helicopters and uh, if necessary shoot them down, but we never did. Okay, so there was never any hot situation resulting in Ubon while you were there? We had hot scrambles against unknown intruders. Uh, I had one one day, uh, the, there was an aircraft uh, that was coming in unknown, unidentified from uh, Laos flying right across Thailand to Cambodia. Um, and two of us were scrambled, uh, Marty Susans and I, and we intercepted the aircraft. It turned out to be a uh, an American transport aeroplane, a C-46 Curtis Commando, but under Laotian markings. And uh, it was flying south with the cargo door open and it was heading straight for Ubon. And uh, we identified it and we had to contact uh, the Air Defence Commander, who was an American in Bangkok. Uh, it took some time to contact him. We, we tracked the aircraft and we said, hey, listen, he's going to fly right over Ubon. The American Phantom flight line is there, very exposed, and they got their cargo door open. What should we do? And uh, they just said, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. I actually <laughs> formated on the aircraft, and I could see basically villagers. You could see uh, young ladies uh, in, in costume and so on just waving to me, and I waved back. And it was clearly not a, uh, not a threat, but nevertheless, uh, it could have been. And by the time they got the American commander to make a decision, uh, they were well and truly past U-Bond and it was heading out. Well, if they had not, if that had not been the case, the people you were trying to contact would be liable for, we told you, we told you. Exactly. They could have yeah. Wiped. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just want to move to Vietnam. But before that, how do you land a mirage without a wheel in the nose? Uh, it was unknown at the time, but it was um, it was not as harassing as it sounds. <laughs> the, 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 the basic uh, training, I suppose, and the decisions we had for emergency procedures were if, if the main wheels failed in any way, it was a mandatory ejection because uh, uh, the aeroplane probably would break up on, on touchdown. The, uh, the no-nose wheel situation was unknown, and... Uh, with the main wheels down and locked, you could land normally. The, the, the aeroplane landed in a very nose-high attitude and you could actually hold the nose off until a relatively low speed, maybe 70 or 80 knots. And uh, the expectation was that by then it would be controllable. Um, and I had, uh, I had foam laid on the runway and we had to divert the other aircraft who were airborne to go to Richmond because they 
I needed the runway basically. And uh, no, I just landed her. It's a rather alarming view of the of the runway in front of the nose as you're grinding along the runway. But um, and it just ground away the uh, the nose probe and the radar nose cone. But there was no other damage to the airplane. And it turned yeah, out to be just a little uh, a little O-ring seal in the hydraulic system that stopped the uh, the nose wheel going down. Did that plane ever fly again? That was A three fifteen. That's the one I flew in the aerobatic team. That's your favourite plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's how we got to know each other. You should, if you have grandchildren, call them a three fifteen. Well, you, you, you 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 hit the nail on the head. My son, who as a youngster was an avid uh, rider of a little Suzuki motorcycle, a little tiny thing, you know, a little one that you ride in the paddock, and he put a label on the front a three fifteen. Ah, there you go. It runs <laughs> in the family. It runs in the family. Um, all right, Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is uh, rather significant, and you've got a very important role. You're a forward air controller, which, from what I've been led to believe from other people I've spoken to, is probably the most risky thing you can do in a war zone, flying a Cessna with uh, no guns, and you're in charge. Tell us about that. How did you feel? It's a strange thing. Uh, the The... The way it was done, Gareth, is that we had no fighter aircraft deployed in Vietnam. We didn't have a suitable aircraft. We didn't have anything with the, the bomb load or the in-flight refueling to be compatible with the Americans there. <clears throat> so um, the Air Force made a policy decision to give our fighter pilots some experience of a war zone, a tactical war, um, to be sent as uh, attachments or as members of the United States Air Force and joining a, a USAF squadron and the role that they thought would be appropriate would be was forward air control. It was difficult in many ways because um, I'll, I'll give you my story, it's true of all the others too, but I was in Butterworth at the time in, <clears throat> excuse me, in 75 squadron. We actually trained as a team. We were, we were very experienced pilots by that stage. We knew the airplane inside out and we actually knew each other inside out, so you knew who you could fly close to. <clears throat> Excuse me, I might just get a sip of water. Yeah, go, go, go for it. I mean, this oh. whole story is fascinating. Go on. <laughs> so um, we, we knew each other intimately. We knew, you know, we flew upside down together in the middle of a storm, etc., etc. You knew who you could trust. You knew absolutely everybody else. And so the expectation was if we ever had to go to war in defence of Australia, for example, we would go as a squadron and uh, we would do what we were trained to do. The eerie feeling for, uh, for Vietnam was that all of a sudden we'd go as an individual, we'd go to a, a war that we had not much knowledge of, join as members of the United States Air Force, join their military command and control, their rank system, their food, uh, their music, their habits, etc., etc., and then fly an American aeroplane, uh, totally alone and unarmed, over a combat zone uh, in a role that you're not that familiar with. We had some basic training in Australia of uh, forward air control techniques and how to communicate with the army and with uh, with fighters, but not to the extent that it was employed in Vietnam. So that that was a big hurdle to get in there. We were first uh, inducted through a, a two-week course um, in Phan Rang. <laughs> the place was called Fak Hue, which was Forward Air Controllers <laughs> University. 
um, as, it, as the Americans tend to. And so we did our, we did our two-week course at FACU, and that introduced us to the aeroplane, the American rank system, the command and control structure within the Air Force over Vietnam, and uh, it gave us a bit of an introduction to American food, American beer, which is awful, and American music. I'll never forget endlessly listening to Glenn Campbell and Galveston, oh, Galveston. It was on all the time because every, every shack in, uh, in Vietnam that the Americans had had two things. It had a Coke machine and a jukebox. Having said that, uh, we, we fitted in well with them. Uh, they were great people. They liked us. We liked them. Um, we were then uh, deployed to different parts of Vietnam. I was attached to the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron at Benoit. Benoit was a big base near uh, Saigon. And then from there I was further deployed to Vung Tau to support the 1st Australian Task Force in, uh, in Phuc Thuy Province, uh, flying the little Cessna 02. Um, and that was, uh, that was our bread and butter for, uh, for the time I was there. So, well, the time you were there, you had 250 missions and 80 airstrikes. Yes. That's no small number. I know. There's, there's one thing that's uh, very impressive about the Americans is the resources they have. I mean, if they want an aerodrome, they'll have the, the graders in there. It'll be scrape level. The, the pierced steel planking will be down. And they'll have the hut, as I mentioned, with the jukebox and the coke machine within a day. They're just amazing. And then in terms of the aviation resources that the Army could call on for fire support, it was massive. It was beyond what we could ever expect to have uh, available to us in a war zone. And in those days, of course, it was the size that mattered because the weapons accuracy was quite poor compared to today. They were, they were unguided weapons. <clears throat> and so... It relied heavily on the pilot's skill and having something uh, quite clearly marked to, uh, to aim at. And that was our role primarily, was to communicate with the Army so we knew where our fellows were, uh, where the nasty fellows were, where the civilians were, and then to, uh, to mark the jungle, which was unrecognisable for the fighter pilots, to mark it with a clear white puff of smoke um, and for that we had uh, high-velocity uh, high rockets with a white phosphorus warhead and it gave a puff of smoke for about 30 seconds that the fighter pilots could then aim directly at. But coming with that, it made their job easier, but also in Vietnam, the first time ever that uh, the Army handed over responsibility and we had total control of the airspace during the conduct of the airstrike and with that came total accountability if anyone was injured, if any friendlies were hurt, or if any civilians were injured. I've been led to believe that the uh, fatality rate was greater among the American FACs as opposed to the Australian FACs, proportionally. You're, you're quite right. We, we lost none. Uh, we had one who was shot down but ejected from the OV-10. Um, we had some minor uh, incidents, but... You also have to balance that with where we operated. The, the forward air controllers, the USAF uh, forward air controllers, also um, operated heavily along the Cambodian Laotian border over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, they operated up near the DMZ, or DMZ as they say. Um, we, we were not in protected areas, but we weren't allowed to go into Cambodia or Laos under our uh, government policies. 
so we weren't exposed to that heavily. That, that, that's where the, the heavy flak was, the heavy uh, machine gun fire. Um, in our experience and in our province, uh, mostly what we uh, came across was small arms fire, automatic weapons firing at us. Um, if there was anything like a 50 calibre machine gun, then we brought in air support very, very quickly to knock it out. So um, we, had, we had two things in our favour. One, the area of operation but also the standard of training, the quality of training of Australians was far higher. We, we were selective. We had taken experienced fighter pilots from the squadrons into the FAC role, whereas in America they were very short of people. They were uh, trying to get everybody through the Vietnam War for one tour before they sent anybody twice. Uh, for the forward air control role, they had to bring in some relatively inexperienced people, and for the fighter flying, even there were some relatively inexperienced people. So the uh, the consistency and accuracy, and survivability of those guys um, suffered accordingly. And I understand. Uh, in your eighty airstrikes, David, is there one or two that stand out in your memory that you can maybe share with us? Uh yeah, there's a couple actually. Uh, of, of the 80 I delivered, 20 were with the Australian Magpies, the uh, Canberra Squadron, based at Fan Rang, two squadron. Uh, we had one incident there. I mentioned 50 calibre. One of the things we watched out for <coughs> was a, a crater. There's bomb craters everywhere, as you can imagine. But one of the techniques that the Viet Cong had was to build a mound in the centre of the crater. And on that mound, they could mount a heavy machine gun and because they could stand in the crater, they could elevate the gun at a high angle and fire at aeroplanes. So if we spotted a crater with a mound being built in the middle of it, we took it out straight away with an airstrike. And uh, I had a, a magpie one day. We had a, a suspected 50 cal site, and the, uh, the weather was pretty bad. We had a 1,000-foot cloud base, and the Canberra came in, and they had a look at it, and they said, yes, we will go ahead and do, uh, uh, do a strike. So I lined up the, uh, the target for them, and being a possible defended site, I developed a technique of firing two Willie Pete smoke rockets, one short of the target and one on the target, and that gave the pilot a long-distance reference to line up with. And uh, they did their run-in, they, they dropped the bomb on target, but immediately afterwards they reported flak damage. They had been hit uh, in the nose and the, uh, narrowly avoided the, uh, the bomb aimer in the nose. So uh, we, we waited while they did a slow speed check and made sure that there was no further damage and they weren't on fire. And uh, they asked could they do one more pass and just drop the whole bomb load. And uh, so we marked the target a second time, they dropped the whole lot. Um, but when they went home they found that the damage that they had suffered was from their own shrapnel from the, uh, from the bomb they had ah. dropped, <clears throat> although we didn't know it at the time. The, yeah. the other strike, which I, I guess uh, illustrates the, uh, the complexity of the role, uh, particularly in Fuktui province, was we operated very much with Australian units, so we developed our own relationships. We had uh, the Possum helicopters, which are the little Sioux helicopters of the Australian Army's 161 recce flight. We had armed Iroquois helicopters from 9 Squadron, the Bushrangers, uh, ourselves, uh, even though we're in a USAF aeroplane, we're Australians, and we sometimes had magpies or American fire support. We had one day where we had a, 
a convoy, an American-led convoy of South Vietnamese Army. They were travelling in armoured personnel carriers along a road and the road was elevated above the rice paddies and the rice paddies were spread on either side. And the uh, Viet Cong very cleverly uh, exploded a mine under the front uh, APC and one under the rear APC. So this whole column was on this exposed road and there was a line of trees on either side outside of the rice paddies and they just started heavily firing on this convoy. So we actually had an engagement where we had the bush rangers on one side. I had fighters, I had two F-100s and then followed by two Phantoms uh, bombing on the other side and uh, we had uh, gunfire and ground fire from both sides. And it went on for about 15 minutes uh, until they, uh, the nasty fellows withdrew. But it was an illustration, I think, really of how you can effectively employ all of that power safely, um, but it has to be well controlled by, uh, you know, by, by forward air controller. And that, that is you, David, that is you. In that case it was, yeah, but I mean, other guys did the same thing. Yeah, sure, but I mean, it, we're talking to you and therefore you have got to take a good feeling out of that you are an FAC that no doubt saved lives. I believe so. In fact, uh, it was it was very interesting. I, I didn't really want to get too much into the uh, morality of it all, but when we were, uh, or during our tour in Vietnam, we have two breaks. One was called R&C, Rest in Country, which is a, a few days off, and the other was called R&R. You've probably heard about R&R, Rest and Recuperation. We actually came back to Australia, and to do that, um, we flew back to uh, Tonsonut, which is the main airbase near Saigon. And as we boarded a Qantas aeroplane, which was flying Army and, uh, and Air Force guys back for a week's R&R in Sydney, the Army colonel got up at the front of the aeroplanes and he said, hey, listen, guys, um, I, I have to apologise. He said, please don't wear your uniforms uh, because people are throwing paint and spitting on the troops when you, when you get home. Now, that actually had a greater negative effect on morale than anything else. I mean, we could put up with the ground fire, we could put up with the uh, exaggerated TV news and things that we saw from America. Now, we, we didn't see Australian news, we only saw the American. But to hear that to go home to Australia and to be possibly treated that way was, was earth-shattering. And also, I was there for Christmas, uh, Christmas 69. Uh, I flew on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, but... My mother had actually baked an apple pie for me and she packed it up with a, a you remember the big cans, steel cans of VB? She sent yes. a, uh, an apple pie with a big can of VB for me as a Christmas present. But we heard that the, uh, the wharfies in Melbourne had gone on strike and they refused to load the supply ship, the Japarit. Um, we didn't get our Christmas parcels until February. You can imagine what my apple pie looked like in February. <laughs> but the beer was good. But the VB was still okay. The, yeah, the beer was okay. <laughs> but, I mean, Let's, that had the greatest effect of, on morale, Gareth, uh, over, um, more than anything else. Yeah, and then when Australians did come back to have various people in various uh, military organisations or RSLs say, yeah, you're, you're not welcome. Yeah. I mean, that... Yeah. I can't believe how bad that, that must have made you feel. Yeah, well, there's there's... 
two stages really as far as Air Force is concerned Gareth the the Korean War was treated as the Forgotten War. No, no one wanted to talk about it. I was a boy in Melbourne during early 1950s and there was nothing in the newspapers about the Korean War and about 77 Squadron again, it's heavy commitments. We lost 44 pilots in the Korean War. Nothing was yep. really discussed. And then that was a, a sort of a passive ignoring of the people that came home from the Korean War. But then Vietnam to be actively criticised um, both by the public, um, the, the students, I guess, but also the press, and, and then to find the RSL uh, in some areas didn't welcome you. It, it was a very, very negative feeling. See, David, for me, this, I think, and I hope, is one of the reasons this series of interviews is important, because it allows Australians now to hear the stories of people in the Royal Australian Air Force who've been involved in situations that have in their time been ignored or treated badly. And hopefully it is a way of repairing that damage done to those people like you all those years ago. So hopefully these interviews are seen as, as a positive way of shining a light on what we really did during those periods of time and what the Defence Force really did in the defence of Australia and the defence of the free world. You're absolutely right. I think the general public um, during the Vietnam protests, and I can understand why people protest against war, but it's wrong to take it out on the troops. And it was it was much later that we realised the damage that it did. And I remember when the, the first battalions were welcomed home from uh, Afghanistan they actually paraded through places like Townsville and were welcomed by the public. And that, it, that makes an enormous difference because you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. Um, also, I, I found that um, the, the whole structure of the Department of Veterans Affairs and so on is, is being uh, re-educated, I suppose, since Vietnam. Uh, I've been treated marvellously by DVA with my cancer treatments and things like that, so that has changed. The RSL has changed very much to, to be very yeah. positive. But the sad thing that I heard recently, I, I was involved in a project designing a bed for homeless people, but I discovered that amongst the homeless is quite a large percentage of ex-military fellows, and that's, yep. uh, that's tragic. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully this all will get redressed, hopefully. But I've got to say, it's been my absolute privilege over the last couple of years to be the Master of Ceremonies on Vietnam Veterans Day in Sydney. Okay. And to, to see the numbers of participants, not those who were in Vietnam, but members of the general public coming along to see that ceremony, that's heartening. Yes, absolutely. I, it's coincidental, actually. I was invited. My, my daughter has just bought a house in uh, a place called Menzies Creek in Melbourne, near in the Dandenongs. And uh, they asked if I would give a speech at the RSL, at the Upway RSL uh, on Anzac Day. And uh, I flew down there for that. And I was there for the parade as well. Um, and it was the first time I had marched with my children. Uh, they, they wore my medals and so forth, and it was quite emotional. Um, but they also felt the emotion with um, uh, the local people, uh, the local CFS, all of the local yeah. volunteers, 
and the kiddies from schools all lining the street and all cheering and clapping. And it was very, very moving. And I, I think it should happen to all the, uh, the vets that come home from any war. I agree 100%. I've got to ask you, and I don't quite understand, you had a total electrics failure at night in a plane <laughs> or was it a helicopter? Which was it? Uh, it was in my little O2, yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Okay, oh, all right. <laughs> it's a little bit complicated. We we did night strikes in Vietnam as well, where they uh, they utilised a flare ship, a, a, a large transport aeroplane, which dropped flares to illuminate the target area, and then we had to mark the target with rockets, and then we control fighters who then had to deliver the weapons underneath the uh, the flare. And uh, for that operation, because the workload is so high in the cockpit, we carried a second forward air controller on board just to look at the instruments and make sure we were the right way up most of the time. And uh, I had flown this aeroplane in the afternoon and the characteristic of the O2, it had two engines and two electrical systems. And if one failed, the other one should automatically take over. And uh, it normally did. Um, but we were uh, in the middle, of, we were scrambled for uh, what's called troops in contact. Now, if, uh, if you have troops in contact, they're actually heavily engaged with the enemy and that gets first priority. So all the fighters and that in the area are diverted for that, for that role. And I was scrambled for a troops in contact uh, night strike. And uh, we got to the target area and we were halfway through. Well, we completed the, uh, the strike actually on the way home. And uh, the first electrical system failed, but the second one didn't come in, and so we had nothing. Um, and so my, my colleague, Chris Neal, he's a lovely chap, an American uh, guy, he unfortunately passed away last year. But he, uh, he held a torch for me on the airspeed indicator. And, uh, of course, over Vietnam, there were no lights because uh, if you turned your lights on, you were potentially a target. So it was just pitch, pitch black. Um, we, we managed to stagger home to, to Vung Tau and uh, lined up on the runway even though the whole place was unlit. But fortunately there was a, a mohawk about to take off and so the runway lights were turned on for the mohawk and we were able to do an approach and, uh, and land safely with no flaps. We had to pump the undercarriage down and, uh, and land. But uh, no, it was okay. Yeah, well you're still here. That's yeah, good. Absolutely. <laughs> it all good. worked, yeah. Good. Okay, uh, you were also then at some stage past that selected to form 77 Squadron, the aerobatic team for the RAF's 50th anniversary, the Deltas. How did you put that team together? Uh, what, 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 oh, what no, was it, wasn't, it wasn't my job to put it together. I had a, uh, a very adventurous commanding officer, Bill Simmons. Um, we were asked, uh, or operational command was, uh, was asked to form an aerobatic team uh, to represent the command during the Air Force displays. The Air Force had the roulettes, of course, in those days, which was training command or support command. And so 77 Squadron was selected to form the aerobatic team. And uh, Bill Simmons, uh, he selected the, the team with Bruce Grayson as the leader. Uh, I was one of the solos and we had a team of... Initially, it was a team of three, but we convinced them after a while to increase it and we ended up with uh, with five in the team and two solos to make an integrated display. Uh, we modified the aeroplane to, uh, to make smoke trails and we performed all over Australia at the major air shows. And after the, uh, the first show, the one at Canberra, the French air attaché ran up to us afterwards and said, 
please come to the Paris Air Show and do the show there with the Mirage. And he was, he wow. was actually, that was a serious invitation. He had French aircraft that we could fly and we could have performed at the Paris Air Show, but we couldn't get, couldn't get permission from our authorities to let us go. Oh, how disappointing is that? Yeah. You've been in the Air Force 21 years. Yeah. And you retired, I believe, as a wing commander. Yep. What came first, retirement or the wing commander? Uh, the wing commander came well before that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We, 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 don't, we don't add another rank anymore like we used to. Yeah. How did that eventuate? What, the wing commander? Yes. It's just normal promotion. lead up? Normal, normal, normal promotion. promotion. Yeah, I was uh, – I had a normal progression, I suppose, um, through through various staff jobs in, uh, in research and development. I'd done the test pilots course. Um, I managed some R&D trials – and uh, got promoted through there, and I ended up as the project manager for the uh, Wamira trainer that was going to be built in Australia uh, as my last assignment. Um, and uh, that was partially uh, one of the reasons why I left. Fair enough. All right, 21 years. I really, in retrospect, have to thank the RAF for <laughs> training you on chipmunks all those years ago and starting that, that career for you. Post RAAF, you're now a publisher. Your a book. What what do you publish? Uh, well, what happened is I, I left the air force. I didn't want to go into the airlines. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit more creative, and so I joined a an aviation training college, and we formed a college in Adelaide, um, which grew to the stage of we were an airline cadet training college. We had uh, thirty five airplanes, uh, ninety five staff. 200 students and uh, accommodation, everything on, on Parafield. And uh, I was the development manager for the for the college. And I got to know, I chose the aeroplanes. I got to know the French system very well. And then uh, after that, uh, I was offered an opportunity to purchase a small publishing company that published training manuals for pilots. So uh, my wife and I... Uh, moved to Melbourne, we bought the company and then grew it and then moved the company to Brisbane. And that's how we still do it these days. We publish training manuals on, you know, for the licenses like uh, aerodynamics, navigation, meteorology, those sorts of things. Well, that career certainly enabled you to get a complete set of uh, Biggles books. So there's, there's got, to, <laughs> got to be a, a light everywhere. Look, it's been an honour, David, to chat to you. You have a fascinating career, and I, I'm quite serious when I say big thank you to the RAF, the RAF, uh, because uh, it was the first Air Force. We're the second oldest Air Force in the world in Australia. It's now 100 years, and people like you have made it a rich, wonderful organisation. So, sir, thank you for your time. Thank you for your service, and I hope your day is going to be good. Thank you, Gareth. It was a pleasure to speak to you and to have someone listen. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. 
the RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.